0: You're listening to the Subclub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores.
1: Let's get into the show.
0: Our guest today is Thomas Pettit, an independent mobile growth consultant. Thomas began his work in the subscription app space working on the growth team at Fitness app 8Fit before moving to freelance. In the last years, Thomas has consulted with several large subscription apps such as Lingo Kids, Deezer, Mojo, as well as dozens of early-stage subscription apps. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas.
1: Yeah, thanks, David. Happy to be here. Very excited.
0: Yeah, so we have Thomas on the podcast today because he actually prepared an internal presentation for RevenueCat, and it went so well. We <laughs> thought it'd be really fun to kind of talk through some of those points Um in a podcast form, so today we're going to be going through uh, subscription user acquisition for non-marketers. We're going to try and kind of give an overview, and, and even for folks who've who've been in the industry a while, there's uh, terminology, there's history, there's things that you know just don't necessarily come up unless you unless you've done a deep dive into uh, into app user acquisition. And so we're going to talk through that with Thomas today. We're going to skip through all the background stuff. Um, you can tell us your story. We'll, we'll have you on the podcast again, and you can tell us a story about 8Fit and, and the early days and those kind of things. And we, we've, I've been meaning to have you on the podcast forever, so this, it's great to finally have you on. But yeah, so what we wanted to dive into today was just talking about paid acquisition in relation to app growth and uh, all the other aspects of, of marketing and app growth um, and so a great place to kick that off would be just the role of paid acquisition and the different kind of channels that, that an app should be looking at. Uh, and then we can get through all the um, all the details of everything else. Yeah,
1: cool. If I have to say there's a very brief thing about that, the first one is I really want to call it acquisition because I consider marketing or growth to be much broader fields and having other, other parts are also very interesting, but not the topic necessarily for today. And kind of my point on this, like what's the role of paid UA, paid user acquisition in, in app growth is all starts from um, the best product is not necessarily going to win uh, unless you do have some decent marketing strategy. And for the app context, especially some paid budget, it's kind of organic is never enough to scale very significantly. And every single one of the huge apps that make it to to the top of the charts, they actually mainly, mainly pushed by, not mainly, but like partly pushed by by paid user acquisition. And here there's also a caveat to that, another extreme, which is paid UA alone is not gonna lead you to a place you want to be. So it's kind of you really want both like organic strategies and paid, uh, but at some point you'll have to you'll have to pay for it, uh, is my opinion.
0: A great, a great example of that that you brought up, um, you and I've talked about a few times, is uh, is TikTok. Is like how, I mean, they they were like one of the most viral apps of the last, you know, five years, ten ever. years. I mean, ever, yeah. And yet they spent what a billion dollars in user acquisition. People kept talking about how viral it was, and and it was. And that's kind of what you're saying. It's like they got to where they were not just through paid marketing, but also not just through virality.
1: I mean, the apps that really made it to that level and stay there—some they make it there and they crash very soon after. Right. I mean, it's a combination of a lot of paid, a lot of variety, and a great product. Like, I mean, if you don't have all three and other things on top, you never stay at the top for 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 that long. And I believe in the case of TikTok, they really had it. But I like to give that counter example when people tell me, "No, no, like paid." This is bad. I don't need to pay. My product is the best. I'm like, yeah. And they told me like, uh, TikTok, look, the, the younger audience, they just share it between themselves. I'm like, yeah, but they spend almost a billion uh, uh, to to propel it at first, and they're still spending a significant amount of money, which I don't know the number like for this year or whatever. But um, yeah, but they had it all. I mean, we couldn't pinpoint TikTok on they spend the most, so they are there. It's a
2: combination of things. So one thing that I think is about, well, there's one thing about UA that I think makes a lot of founders uncomfortable is you, you start, you build an app because you know how to serve a need. You have an idea. You want to make something for somebody. Um, but then you get that launched. Maybe you're disappointed with your growth. Maybe you just have heard that it's something you have to do, like you, you've you said. Um, but it's very foreign, right? It's, it's, it's how do you even start? When do you start? what So, like, I think there's probably a lot of listeners out there who have heard of UA who like know it's something they need to do, but probably don't know like how to even start. What do you say to the founder who just? What's the first thing you ask when somebody comes to you and is like, "Hey, I need to do paid user acquisition"?
1: Well, the first thing I say is, "Show me your retention metric," because if it sucks, I don't want to work with them. So that's, <laughs> the, that's the first thing I say. <laughs> Uh, it's terrible to be a marketer and work for, for a bad product, but uh, I sometimes do.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a great kind of segue, though. is like, do you think that apps should wait to do paid user acquisition until they have some level of like kind of product market fit? So like, should you early on do, if you can get enough organics in to like kind of understand and experiment, should you work on those things before you even start?
1: I think there's kind of a chicken and egg problem here. Um, On the organic side, you should start like way before you even have the app, like building whatever it is, like an email list, content, uh, community, whatever it is, you should start as early as possible. On the paid side, the way I see it is you don't need, like there's not a need to get it started. really depends on how fast you want and need to grow. So basically, if you received a lot of VC money, they're going to have a lot of demands on how fast you get there and you're pushed to actually start it much earlier. You also have the cash to do it. It kind of makes sense. Um, if you're bootstrapped, you don't need to actually focus too much on it. And it's even a bit of a problem to focus too much on it at the, at the beginning. But there's still two main interests to do user acquisition, paid user acquisition very early. The first one is to actually fuel those cohorts so you do improve retention. And I don't really call it paid user acquisition in this case. It's just I need to have at least 50, 100 users per day, just so I know that that latest release I've shipped is doing better than the other one. If you don't have a strong base of organic at the beginning, and that's often the case, uh, it kind of helps you understand if your product can actually work. That's why I call it the chicken and egg problem. If you have no user, you don't really know if it's getting better or not. And the other one is, you have to be very careful about being biased by your early adapters, even if you have like some organic baseline, because their behavior is likely not representative of uh, Mm. what I call gen pop, but uh, like mainstream audience. Um, And you could be fooled to actually thinking your product is really, really good just because you satisfied the need of a hundred early adapter That, but this is not going to scale. And I think here, like having a, a very small amount of paid UA based on that is actually healthy because it enables you to one, compare a little bit, compared to this cohort of early adopters, validate some hypotheses, but also work the product and especially retention-wise towards an audience that can actually scale and not the audience of a couple of freakies from that yeah. field and friends. Well, usually friends. i ter- terrible early adopters anyway. So I for, don't like friends. Really, I don't even call them anymore. Like, were <laughs> those that aware
2: mean. of a, a Spanish uh, a nerd parlance? Freaky is just a, a, a term for like a computer person. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, I'm nerd. Sorry, or like <laughs> might have different connotations in English. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Pardon
1: uh, <laughs> my French. No, I mean, that's a, that's
2: a, uh, I mean, it's an incredible point. I haven't even, I hadn't even thought about that. Like I was in my mind, it was like, don't even think about this stuff until you have some sign of PMF. And I think that varies depending on what you're doing and how you're monetizing. Is that, you know, day one retention, is that day seven, day 30 retention? Is that your one month renewal rate? Is that your 12 month renewal rate? I think that's going to be really dependent and correct me here, Thomas, but like, I think that's really just going to depend on your app, your business, like whatever, but, Um, I hadn't really thought about that as in terms of starting a trickle of paid UA just to um, make sure that your sample isn't overly biased for very high intent users, right? Because, you know, if you're not doing, even if you have a little like earned, um, and we'll talk about that, but even if you're getting featured in the app store and stuff like that, those are really odd audiences as well. And and probably, I don't know how those like compared to uh general population, but it's, it's definitely not the people who are gonna click on ads potentially, right, so.
1: Yeah, I, I agree on that. And it, it goes actually, like I, I, I quoted the early adopters of being a particularly kind of good cohort. So you get biased. I think the featuring is a really good example of the opposite, like just people browsing yeah. in and checking it out. And usually I kind of like to even exclude the days I've got featuring because mm-hmm. if it's really big in proportion to, to your audience because they're actually not representative either of what the product is going to become. Um, One of the reasons to do paid acquisition at a small scale is also to validate what's coming later, not necessarily for growth and I need to achieve that amount of user or whatever, but actually, okay, once I'll be stalling a little bit and I will have to rely on paid UA, which in my experience comes sooner or later always if you're ambitious, you don't have to, if you're bootstrap and just want to live out of it, you could live out organic. I'm talking about like scaling significantly. Then you will have to come to pay and you want to have like this early feeling of what this traffic is going to look like, what is monetization and retention are going to look like. And I personally consider it's better to know it early and even more than that, be able to iterate on it to, to, to a very extreme point. I've worked with a couple of subscription apps, which are, mainly reliant on paid uh, primarily, which is also a problem. But actually from the very get-go, they say, oh, I'm not even going to bother about building these organic. I'm going to put a little bit of paid traffic in there because I want to iterate my traffic specifically for that one because I know that's what's going to scale it later. So that's a little bit of an extreme view and definitely don't do only that. You also (laughs) want the organic. But I think you need to have both things to try to prepare um, I mean the product iteration, but also the data structure that you have behind, the kind of people you hire. Um, and I think it's useful for 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 a lot of things. I don't like it's kind of there's paid UA early on. You're not really trying to grow, it's small budget, you don't need to do it the best in the world, like, and that's totally fine. And then there's really scaling through paid UA. And I kind of tend to consider these two activities as Slightly different, mm. even though they're the same thing. You just pay pay for traffic, and, and uh, yeah.
2: And so, just to put numbers on it, when you say a small budget, what is that like? Mm. Thou- like <laughs> single digit thousands per month, or?
1: Yeah, uh, I'd say it's a little bit more than that now, uh, especially because product like advertising product, I've 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 changed a little bit into actually punishing the smallest budget. So I would say small is kind of somewhere between five and twenty k amounts, maybe. Like under five k is really hard to do anything meaningful. Really, like under under hundred dollars is really complicated to to move things up on on Facebook and Google specifically. Maybe on Apple you could do a little bit less, but then you focus on just the, this high intent keyword and you don't know how the other ones are working. So it's mm-hmm. kind of yeah. I mean, ideally, like ten grand a month would be would be something that you start making conclusion on because if it's smaller, uh, the problem is that you can't really make
2: decisions not nothing yeah. statistically significant you'll get installs but like the you're not going to get the the secondary benefit which is is the knowledge right the learning and it's not
1: going to be the same traffic as you'll get later so that's a problem and I'm not saying here like 10 grand is nothing because for some people, some indies, I must say, this is crazy. Like 10 grand is a lot of money.
2: I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's why I wanted to clarify because like I think there's indies who are going to be like, oh, I've got a couple hundred bucks I can throw into UA every month. Yeah. And yeah. It's I think like... that's a
1: terrible idea. Better not do <laughs> yeah. it. Save it for other things. Or, or maybe you do very specific actions, something like a specific promotion on Reddit or just a couple of keywords on search ads. But this is like, there has to be really super narrow defined don't go to Facebook and Google with a uh, $500 as your whole budget. This is just not going to work because it's machine learning driven. If you don't fit data to the machine, it just doesn't work. And I think it's actually a waste of money in, the, in this, in this case. Also because I mean, it requires work time and yeah. expertise to the distraction, run those. Right? Yeah. And if you go to somebody and say, Oh, look, my budget is like one K. What can you do out of it? Uh, Tell that to me. I was like, I don't know. Maybe I
0: can spend half an hour and see what happens. Um, probably not going to do my best, you know? <laughs> So, so we've been talking about like kind of the two extremes, like organic and then like paid. There's it, it almost kind of like layers on, and, and there's other things in between. So, where where does like earned um, marketing come in, and where does owned marketing come in, and and So so I guess we've kind of come to the conclusion here is that you start paid UA on Google and Facebook at like when you can spend five or ten thousand dollars a month. So before that, you like you said, you want to be building an email list, you wanna be, you know, working toward virality and and word of mouth. So so talk to me about some of those in-between stages and some of the other other things you you could and should be doing even when you're doing the paid.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the, the case of what, a, so owned, uh, audience that you built for yourself and earned from other people, which had different scale, stages, can be virality, can be content because you position positioned on Google, uh, can be PR, can featuring for me is actually earned because you earn it from Apple, you're mm-hmm. gaining it from Apple's audience. I think all these activities, they're one, things that you should do from day one of the project, like not even of the app, of the project. You should start, like the earlier you start, the better. You get great feedback and you're going to need it later. But it's not technically free, you know? You're spending a lot of time to do that. It's just not paid budget, but it's still like a marketing action that you dedicate like resources to, even if it doesn't mean a budget. And you can uh, can be free influencer because you give away swags or, or, or you're just a cool kid in the blog or, or whatever. I think those activities, they should do, they should be done super early on, typically because they take a, a little bit of longer time to come up. And this is why paid become very addictive is that when you start it, you say, oh, but look, I want 500 in, so I'll just put some money in that mm-hmm. machine and, and it's coming. So you also want to start before UA, because otherwise you kind of incentivize not to. And but it goes all along the, the the whole cycle because also with UA you realize at some point you need to, to complement it. And I think when you look at this at this like everything that's own and earn, for me it's like a must from A to Z, like non-stop, you never stop on that. Like some they're not gonna work. Maybe content doesn't work for you, but you need to find your own earn and own sure. traffic. Yeah. Otherwise, at some point you're gonna be in trouble, like for sure. The way I see it, those they are the organics. Like us marketers, like a lot of people would call organic what you don't pay. As marketers, we call organic what we can track, like with the current or shall I say past attribution schemes, <laughs> uh, which is basically organics are non-attributed. And here, technically, this is how it works. But from a conceptual point of view, a strategic point of view, I look at own and earn as I'm not paying for paid media. I'm exchanging time against uh, mm. exposure. Um, that's what I call organic.
2: Yeah, and it depends how you, <laughs> where you get that time, because like you know, if you're if you do have a content engine, you could be paying for it, right? And it 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 is just like a it's a more distanced, removed form of of pay, But but as you say, like nothing, no, unless <laughs> unless you happen to you know trip into the best app store feature with no work, which doesn't really happen. Um, I think that's one, I think that's maybe one misconception for absolute like newbies on the app Store is the folks that are getting featured, they're putting in the biz dev relations with Apple, like they're, they have, they're, they're, they're pulling the levers, they're, you know, making sure when Apple says jump, they jump to give them what they need. When in my past life at Elevate, this was our this was our strategy for the first two years. We did not have paid UA. We did not have any like really owned media. We had like you know our Twitters and whatever and stuff like that, but they weren't really big sources for us. It was literally like biz dev with Apple. What does Apple want? How can we get featured? And it worked for us. We got App of the Year. We got Editor's Choice. We did we basically like got, did the whole round. But to your point, talking about this transition, at some point the party was over. <laughs> right? At some yep. point. Apple was like, yeah, elevate you were the 2014's hot thing. Right. And now um, that's when we had to kind of like scramble and 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 move to a more sustained UA strategy. And, you know, talking about some of those other channels like content or community, those are things you actually own. And those are compounding. So I would even say, you know, as good and pop and as hot as the features can be, getting that editor's choice badge. I don't know if they still do that on the App Store, but they do. They do getting those on your on your profile permanently is great and like worthwhile. Um, but that's probably like the only real lasting benefit of those features. You really want to own something that's going to drive traffic eventually. That will be a UA machine, but you're not going to get that in your first prime million of revenue, right? So um, figuring out what works for you is super important. I completely agree with that, and I, I think the featuring part is particularly true here.
1: That uh, the the fact is the that- impact of featuring has, has gone down over time. Like the features, they're not what they used to be. They're
2: shorter now. They're like a day. They used to well, be a week. Yeah, it's not only thats that
1: they're presented differently. I don't know if there's more of them. Actually, it's, it was funny when iOS 11 came out, everybody out there predicted that featuring would be much bigger because there's app of the day in big, instead of having all these buttons everywhere. And it produced the exact opposite, like featureings that could bring 100k installs in the past and now you're up of the day and maybe someday you're going to bring five or 10k installs you
2: know yeah i mean well there's 365 of them a year plus they're different in yeah. different countries right versus like editor's choice a lot of times at least in like the english-speaking world one editor's choice you'd be editor's choice in 20 countries for a week right and that was that was insane
1: Personally, on featuring, I tell I tell a lot of people uh, don't add to your don't add this on your strategy. First, mm. there's a random factor in getting them. Even if you're really good at this dev, like Apple has their own criteria, and sometimes it's just
2: and it's opaque. You don't really you. You can try, but you don't know what they're what they're going to do. It's a very particular kind of traffic
1: that, uh, as we said before, might be a little bit uh, not what you want to gear the product to. But for me, the biggest problem is that this is not a sustainable strategy. If your strategy is, I'm going to be featured every other week out there, oh, it's the exhausting. week you're not, which yeah. doesn't <laughs> depend on you. And then you're fine. We- <laughs> it's not in your in your hands. I think it's a very dangerous strategy. It, it's great to have them, but... yeah. Like, uh, I take them as a bonus if they come i'm super happy yeah. over objective but i'm gonna go as if i don't get them i still need my other things to be on the plan
2: that's got to be a that's a shift because when you know when we were doing it my first few you know five years of working on the app store it was you lived or died by that um yeah. and but but absolutely to your point like we and, and no knocks on our strategy at elevate we were just doing what worked but like we spent a lot of times chasing things that apple wanted and not necessarily using like a user-centric feedback loop um, and it worked. We got featured for an Apple Watch that nobody used. We got featured for like an Apple TV thing. like. But none of those, you know, those were great for the brand and our relationship with Apple. But I'd I, I'd say they kind of fell short in building this like sustainable thing that we, you know, they eventually figured out with like a UA strategy.
0: I, I think what's happened over time also is that those those featured spots used to bring in higher intent users. So if you think about like back in the earlier days of the App Store... People were more excited to try new things. They were more into like, what's the hot new app? What's you know going on? It wasn't on? mainstream yet, right? Right, and so like, I think the intent of users who see those featured pages has degraded over time on the App Store, and so I think that that kind of compounded the iOS 11 effect of of them featuring so many more apps. And now, not only are they featuring more and more apps, but the intent of those users coming in has degraded further and further. So I, I think it's it's like that whole thing has been compounded because early, I mean, and then also paid versus uh, subscription and things like that. Because like in the early days, like you know, people would drop three, five bucks just to check out a paid app, and so when you could capture that money up front just to satisfy their curiosity, that looked really different than like oh now. They're curious, but you got to turn that curious curiosity into uh, a subscriber, which is a really different funnel. Curiosity as intent is much better captured, paid up front. It's harder to drive an
2: impulse purchase of a subscription, you know, right? like that's exactly. it's a long term relationship. and I, I haven't thought about that. I was I was also kind of wondering, and uh, you know I'll ask if one of you know, uh, and if not, it'll just be an interesting philosophical question. But uh, does 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 Apple or do 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 outside analysts have any sense of how many like installs off the App Store are are like purely that browse like hmm, let me open the App Store with an undirected interest in apps broadly they do versus versus like it's driven maybe not directly through a click but through like a very intended like I'm opening the App Store to install X or like satisfy a need is there data out there on this like Apple has data on this. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, maybe they do. <laughs> no, they, they do look at it. Do, they do look at
1: at the impact of featuring very closely. And I had conversation with them where actually we produced report of, hey, look what the impact of those featuring was on our side. And they were very interested because it was very different from the way they look at it themselves, which obviously they didn't share back. But this is another yeah. like, one-way
2: relationship. Yeah. Uh,
1: there are a few figures out there. Um, personally, I'm slightly... Uh, kind of reserved on on their reliability i know there was in q4 a, a study from from sensor tower i think about the distribution of traffic over time in different categories and so on where search has like a really big share actually compared to bros but this is more recent it's not like over mm-hmm. five years or, or something
2: i mean that would make sense anecdotally to me that like if you open the app store you're less likely to just that that uh window shopping path does not seem yeah, all that common it's still the first tab,
1: you know um, yeah
2: i guess but yeah. like for me like i don't do that anymore <laughs> like I, maybe i used to at some point but like i don't yeah. spend a lot of time just walking the aisles of the app store like i used to
1: it's just a reality that the featuring they're not what you what they used to be but and it leads me to a very very interesting consideration here which is let's carry category a little bit and say you are your, your own experience, Jacob, is on the first era of the App Store, kind of 2010 to 15, which was massively driven by featurings, uh, big curiosity, early adopters on the iPhone. I think a lot less competition because then you would see a fitness app feature. It's probably your first fitness app. Now you see one featured, and you already tried eight of them. So your perception is completely different. And there was also a lot of paid traffic, but that, the nature of it was very different. A lot of instant traffic, everything done on CPI, blah, blah, blah. And my experience is kind of from the second era, uh, more or less 2015 to 2020, where almost Facebook took control over distribution, Were paid in, in Facebook and then later Google and TikTok and others has really taken a really big share of, of discovery on the App Store. And it leads to a point where I think it's an unintended, it's not the main reason, but we're about to enter a new era uh, in marketing because attribution is changing. This is related to the privacy change that Apple is pushing. Um, but I think it would change fundamentally the playbook of how to succeed. And it's kind of elevate 2010, 15, how to succeed. I've got lots of featuring. Uh, I captured traffic early on, it's cheap traffic, CPI install. And then you move to the 2015 2020 how do I go forward it I raise VC money I put it on Facebook um, and I scale through paid and i and I make like I have to make the unit economics of this work and we might be entering in a, a new era there's a lot more complicated because there's more there's more competition and and acquisition is different. Well I think this playbook is actually about to be reshuffled it's kind of the last five six years of experience I have. I'm not sure how relevant they're going to be in two years, actually. Um, yeah. I think we're about to have a, a very big change on this, partly related by uh, Apple's own change, but also the market is moving a lot. And I think there's there's something very new coming. So maybe in five years, we'll
2: have a new guest to like, oh, look, come <laughs> and Thomas and the old
1: dudes there. Like,
0: <laughs> Just staring, <laughs> yeah, confusedly. So, yeah, and I, I think it was great that we started with this more holistic look because I think you're right. I think these things are going to be more important. So many apps did just over the last five years jumped right to the paid marketing. They don't have you know owned interest. They don't focus enough on earned uh, interest. But let's jump back into the paid side because as we you know discussed from the beginning, like even as you do all those other things, you really do need to start paying for traffic. So so first, let's talk about what like what a typical UA manager has done the last five years and talk about, you know, how we look at success and then move on from there. So, so what's the, what's the, the, the job of a UA manager? I'd
1: say here the era were slightly
0: different. Like the, the job of a UA manager already shifted
1: uh, quite radically. Uh, and if I had to put a specific date on it, I would say around 2018, maybe, which is basically the tipping point where, automation made by the networks on Facebook and Google has really taken over a large part of what used to be the job of a UA manager, which was creating a lot of segments of audience and adjusting bids for every single one of them, adjusting creative for every single one of them. And slowly, uh, long, mostly by, by Facebook with like the event optimization, which we can discuss on as big technical, doesn't matter, like Facebook first, Google second, almost everybody now, I actually did not, hey, but actually we can do this with machine a lot better than all you guys, human. And so I called the old job of UA manager, uh, I often I often call the behavior like intraday trading. We were traders from mm-hmm. the 80s, you know, like buying stocks here almost with the hand. I mean, it was on computer, obviously, but like, and really about focusing on small pockets of audience and, oh, for that pocket of audience, I can pay X. And for that pocket of audience, I can, I can pay Y. And from there, we saw a lot of companies building like uh, the first like solid data sets behind to actually do it. But it's the network who have taken a lot of the automation on their side. I mean, there's a lot of things to automate on the developer side, but the networks have done it for us. And it kind of led to what I was doing in 2015 and 16, a little bit 17, is actually dead. Now. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have to do any of it. Because the network said, I can target the audience for you. I can know which creative is going to work for which user specifically. And obviously, they've got a lot more data points on that. They kind of completely automated the UA manager. And I would even go further and say commoditized it. Like it's a much harder job to be a great UA manager today than it used to be. Also mean that the ones who are not really good, they're much better at it today. But um, for me, it was a bit frustrating because I was feeling that I was taken uh, over the toy that worked well for me. <laughs> but then you have to realize where it's going. It's not that the UA manager role vanishes, It's just it evolved into a different thing. I have a presentation on my sh- slide share that we can link about about its evolution of specifically the role of, of, of the person ma- uh, managing that. But it's basically a lot more strategic. You need to think a lot more than before. There was a lot of acting like bluntly be more of a data analyst, like to kind of feed those machine better events than you used to because we were doing it manually and simple events would do, but now you need to be a lot more like tactical about um, the data you're feeding back to to those networks. And the one that is actually the core of the job of a UA manager today is producing, testing and deploying creative. And this is, I would even say, if I take, I don't know, a 40 hours week, might be a little bit more in the US, but does not matter? Uh, Thirty of them are spent on creative, on coming with new mm-hmm. ID, looking at results, iterating, like ex- maybe finding a new agency, maybe maybe even discussing with an influencer. Has partly become I actually want the creative for pay. Like I want the influencer to pu- to 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 publish. I even know people, a lot of people who pay the influencer, they don't even want to pu- to pu- them to post it. They just say I want the creative. And you even negotiate, okay, I can use this creative up to a million impression, or to up to three months or whatever. And influencers do that. What I mean here is that the creative is the biggest, biggest, biggest part of, of the job of a UA manager today. This is where it's done. Designer, Marketing designers typically uh, don't come from this background. So they kind of like have the knowledge of how the platform works and translate it into specs and instruction and insights from the past to designers because typically marketers are terrible designers. Um, so they have to come up with the idea and, and, and make the relationship with the numbers. And this is like the, by far the biggest part of a, of a UA manager job today, hmm. like a um, bit of a strategy of distribution, but.
2: That seems more, uh, more of a good division of labor between machines and human, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Because so far, we haven't fully automated the creative yet. So this is where there's still space to move. But actually, we're getting there, you know, uh, slowly. There's a there's one part. I mean, uh, I don't care about the publicity. I want no shares or interest. And I don't even know them. But I'm hearing a few companies that are starting to automate creative in a very, very efficient mm. way. One is copy.ai for copy. And one that I'm seeing grow a lot is uh, Pencil. I think it's trypencil.com or something like that. Well, basically, you send a few assets and they auto-create like a number of variants. Um, I think the next step of that, I presented this a a year ago or something, is Google has a predictive model to know which creative uh, are going to work or not. But basically, the whole creative job today is uh, still a human task, but part of it
0: is also going to be automated. Um, Real quick, um, before we move on, uh, uh, so we've talked about like all the different parts of marketing in in a typical app, you know, early stage app, especially all these different roles might actually be the same person. So like UA manager might be like, you know, two hours a day. So, but where do you see the, the, the kind of breakdown and, and in the role of kind of UA manager between like, uh, you know, product led growth and like, you know, how much does a, should that the UA manager managing the paid marketing also be working with the the if you have a growth team <laughs> or working with the engineers on like understanding the retention of the paid users and then also working on that like earned and paid like how do how, how do you see all those things kind of working together to build that growth machine um, versus kind of like a UA manager who's like you know, which I, I think a lot of companies have failed at is like putting the UA manager with the blinders on and saying like just go spend the money, but not having those kind of feedback loops and working with the other teams inside the company.
1: That's a that's a very that's a very good point. Um, on the most early stage, I mean, this is the nature of very early stage startup. You need to do a bit of everything, and this is just the way it is because there's not what you don't do, nobody else does. So you just come and do it, and it's normal that you're touching on on creative and on product, and 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 maybe you're also feeding the fridge and cleaning the toilets. It's just startup startup. be all, you know, <laughs> like uh, it's just the nature of it. At some point, I think it's also like. Uh, Everybody discover where, where they're strong at and, and what their ambition is. And I take my personal example in that, which when I saw how the main differential in UA was going to the creative part, and I realized that I wasn't really good at it. I didn't fully enjoy it, but I wasn't really good at it. So that was a problem. I kind of hired people that were better for me, better than me on that. And I did move a little bit more into uh, product led part and the onboarding and and monetization, just because I was more excited about it and I kind of felt I could make a bigger difference. So it was kind of natural for me to say, oh, where this role is going is not so great. I'm gonna go the side where I can make a difference. And this is very personal. Like you just evolve your employees based on where they're thrilled and where they produce impact. You can't force people into a role that they're not gonna not gonna fit. But this we couldn't plan before. Nobody has written that it <laughs> would happen this way. And I think this kind of happened at the same time where we started realizing that the UA manager just focused on, on UA it was a terrible idea. Uh, not when they free up time because the network's automated it, but because it took like, I don't know, five or six years for people to realize what manner is down the funnel. And... Yeah. Uh, Eric Surfert has great writing on this, like on, on the evolution of growth team. And it, it, I think for games it's even more acute in the sense that a UA manager that doesn't participate in the monetization part is, is in a big disadvantage, but also vice versa, that you need the the UA person to feed inside. Like it, it really come together as if monetization and acquisition had become like a more intertwined um field discipline. So I guess it happened like Like everything that happened early in games, it becomes super critical, but it's also we were going through, oh, I can't work on install. I need to go down the funnel a bit. And then suddenly you realize you don't have so much power. And I I, I read this, not a quote from me, that um, acquisition has become a a business model competition. What that means is you can put the best UA manager ever, uh, if the product doesn't monetize well, it's just never going to be competitive in the auction and bring cheap traffic that converts highly. Like the machine is going to do it for you. Mostly the difference you make is on creative and on monetization. So kind of the role has evolved in one of those two sides, just like data and creative are really hard to find in the same person. Um, those two roles are usually different persons. So in an early stage startup, somebody does it, but at some point you're going to need to find somebody who's better uh, in, in one of the two and, and move move around a little bit. So that's why I, I moved out of the creative a little bit. And the truth is that today, most of the UA difference is made on creative. Right. And I'm not particularly good at it, which means I'm a terrible UA manager. I don't even know why people keep calling me, to be honest.
2: <laughs> Diving into that, like... Point you made about it being a business model competition is really interesting because yeah. um, you mentioned you moved into kind of sp- sort of what happens after the install and how that you know if 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 all of the acquisition is automated, really that's where the levers are. It's it's like how do I actually convert that install into paid or whatever because that then feeds back the model. And as you were saying, it's who can acquire. Because the networks are going to optimize for whatever event you ask them to. If that's like a trial start, or I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but like it's a a trial start or a conversion or or whatever it is. So, um, the 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 more efficiently you can do that, like the more efficiently you'll be able to place bids, you'll get the better the better ad placements and all this stuff because the 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 I I don't fully understand how the markets the, the, (laughs) the, the the ad markets work, but like they're always trying to find the 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 most efficient placements, right? The ones that get the most clicks, um, and and well, in this case, conversions, right? Um, so so yeah, I mean, w- w- when you're h- how has that evolved? Because I yeah, in games, it was about whale identification, right? Because you had this like uncapped spend. Which was great because if you could just figure out how to get those, it's it's power laws. They would spend ten x, hundred x, thousand x what a normal user would, and they just get a few of those, and then like it's easy to to get a a positive uh, return on that. But for subscriptions, it's much harder.
1: It's not harder. It's a different game. How is it different? the the whale hunting is a very particular kind of u a, like that is driven by the fact when games move from paid into freemium, like the most successful game, they do have like these very high spenders, and a lot of u a team are focused on that because this is what brings return on investment. The thing is that this is partly or mostly done by the network itself that Facebook knows every well on the planet, like because they have the SDK everywhere. It's just how you're convincing with them, uh, to, to tell them to send them to you. And this is done by bidding higher. Like that's it. Like They also want the ads to be relevant for user. And this is how the auction works. Like Facebook looks and say, I want a balance between this is relevant for, for my user and this is bringing me the most money. What can you offer? So you show them the creative and the bid? And they tell you what they can do. And if your bid is low, they don't serve a lot. If your creative is not super interesting for user, you pay it much uh, higher. And this is just the way the...
2: And that's measured, that's measured based on empirics, like just how, how many clicks it gets or how many opens it gets.
1: Actually, the importance of the clicks has vanished a lot. And I actually tend to not look too much at clicks, like kind of look Sorry. from the impression to the install.
2: But I guess I mean, whatever, kind of the Same sign of, sign of uh, engagement. So from the, on a for PC. us,
1: yes. But for, for the marketer, we look a lot at the impression to install ratio. No? Do people click and install? But actually the network is also very interested in more qualitative data. actually Facebook has diminished the signals that we get from that about relevant score or quality score like for example before we had stat on how many people are hiding hiding the ads you know I don't want to see this ad anymore this is irrelevant or but Facebook takes into account obvious stuff like a like is worth less than a reaction because it cost me more time. But also like a comment is worth this, a share is worth that, but you've got more, much more solid channel. Like if somebody look at your video for a longer time, if somebody takes more time on the like people scroll like crazy fast and they measure that to the millimeter. And if somebody stops in a very scroll uh, in a very fast scroll onto your ad, this is a positive signal. And Facebook has this like really complicated way of measuring that like, like engagement quality that they don't provide so much to marketers, but enable all these machines to run. And so what we're trying to do through the creative mainly is to trigger just positive signals that are going to transfer into me into cheaper install and conversion, just because Facebook is happy. And this is our job to make Facebook happy. Facebook is happy if users stick to the feed the longest time possible, like, uh, and if they earn money from that, like CPMs is a, is a major driver of it. Um, that's kind of how the auction works. But the question was how this is different for whale hunters in gaming and subscriptions. The engagement is not very different. The logic of the auction is actually fairly similar. It's more the logic of bidding that is different. And here for me, something that is quite relevant is that up to maybe one, one year ago, two at best, the biggest network that actually didn't care about subscription because we were small fish in the pound. Like the big fish. There were um, e- gaming, e-commerce, and yeah. brand <laughs> like Candy Crush, uh, Wish, and Nestle or Coca Cola, you know. D2C, Uber, Uber
0: and brand
2: stuff like this. Yeah,
0: scooter companies with VC money to burn.
1: <laughs> and we we're the small fish in there, and they were like, I mean, Facebook didn't have a subscription events until 2000, I think, 18 or 19. And then yeah. they had to build from that and and start trial and so on. And those networks they were not really built for subscription. But at some point catching it. I'm saying, hey, we are starting to have a lot of customer, uh, subscription customer mm-hmm. who are starting to pay. And I think this is a reflection also that some some biggest success, success like grew this way. Uh, Can being worth billions and so on, which three years ago didn't exist. So the network they're like not interested. So that came very late, and they still have to. Tweak the platform into something that is not fully fitted. I think here part of the role of the uh, of of uh, a manager working for subscription is to recognize that and try to adapt to it. Um, for example, something that is super useful for subscription is to have multi-event funnels. Like I want to see if people engage with the product, start the free trial, do they cancel it or not. Actually, the systems are not made for that. They're made for, as they reach level 10, as they consume an IP, and it's kind of a fairly different. So you have to kind of teach the machine in a particular way, sometimes by tricking it. Some pilots just being patient because they need to gather all this data from all these these developers uh, combined. Like for one example, before the the start trial and subscribe even, even existed on Facebook, I know a lot of marketers, they were putting, oh, I'm going to put add to cart, my trial, and purchase when people convert, <laughs> which is logical. Like kind of starting a trial is kind of, I'm adding something to the cart, but I haven't paid yet. Kind of, I'm getting there. I say, no, no, I'm totally not going to do that. I'm going to put my start trial as a purchase because then Facebook is going to send me all these guys who purchase instead. And so I was trying to kind of understand what is the signal Facebook is interpreting and how can I actually maximize this is an old trick in the book. It doesn't work this way anymore, but it did work for, 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 for a long time. I even have people recognize that the purchase event was, uh, had a different treatment inside Facebook, you know, but doesn't matter. Like kind of you have to adapt this, but now the platform are getting a little bit more accustomed to this. You also need to think in terms of your creative fairly differently, like gaming companies monetize in a very different manner and the creative are very different. But here, as you're trying to put people into trials too much you actually do wrong thing and I, I had a competitor at some point that was using what i call the f word but it's the other one is the free word everywhere <laughs> so they were putting start a free trial it's free for 30 days free everywhere like and actually i told my team okay i don't want to see the f word anywhere like in outcomes because we're attracting a lot of people because it's free and this is not what i want i, I don't want to put as many free trial as possible in the app I want people to get convinced by the USP and will end up paying for it. So we're not going to use free anymore. Like it is on the paywall somewhere. I don't know. I can't remember, but in, in external communications. So I took the opposite stand because I was like, we're, we're completely like every time we do it, the funnel looks the way that is, we're, we're churning too many users here. I prefer to have less of them coming in, but um, also saturates the audience less. You know? like So yes, that's the kind of adaptation maybe you want to do, like to think about, our case is is particular um
2: i mean that's the kind of stuff you're talking about like the role of ua as like a tactical role right as moving up is it's it's no longer this like bid management game it is now it is now looking at data understanding the technicalities of these networks and then like applying like some product thinking and intuition about like how it's received like how the product is is displayed and like how that will affect you Know obviously you're never going to know the internal workings 100%, but you can you can you know make some in, in, <laughs> intelligent guesses
0: and then measure, right?
1: Yeah, good luck trying to reverse engineer Facebook algorithm. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I did want to kind of jump into a few of the specifics because I, I, I and and you know we don't have uh unlimited time here uh, and I wanted to get to the transition with uh, app tracking transparency and everything. So let's go real through real quick through kind of the dynamics. So we talked about like you know facebook's trying to optimize for engagement they want people to to slow down on their scrolling when they see your ad and then they tap on your ad okay great and then you send them to the app store and then the app store is a big black box and then on the other end you you start measuring the you know their early engagement their free trial start the other metrics so talk to me about like how things have worked going from you know impression to black box, to you know, finding metrics at work, uh, and then we can go on to to like how all that's changing.
1: Something that a lot of people outside of the 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 app world don't fully understand is that attribution is very unique in the sense that there is an intermediary between like the ad and my product, which is like the this this the store, the black box where they. They're not gonna pass parameters the same way. There's no pixel. There's no cookie. Like all of this doesn't exist in the app world. And it's kind of ten years ago, more or less. Uh, the first MMP emerged. I think both are just an app emerge emerged around 2011, if I'm correct. It might be 2010 or 12. It doesn't matter. Where there was this needs of marketers of, I need to understand where these installs are coming from. I can't just extrapolate. And they actually develop systems that look at, oh, what's happening before people enter the store and what's happening after and give us that information. Over time, the system evolved, but it was kind of a bit of a workaround. And over time, the system evolved uh, based on this company got a lot better at doing it and found better ways of doing it. Like they really work hard towards that. Based on Apple made evolution, the IDFA was not there at the time. It was another identifier. But if we look at the last sort of five, six years, the IDF has been the the primary driver of attribution because it was cleaner than other methods. So basically, Facebook knows the IDFA of those users, and so does Google. I mean, I say Facebook here, it's literally any network. And when you open the app, the an intermediary see oh. DS IDFA this IDFA and they've been there also so that developers don't do tricky things with the with the IDFA of, of on the platform. And so they have this role that was absolutely critical for marketers. I mean if MMPs are not there we just couldn't work. But also like Facebook was growing, marketers got mad with that it's just worked for a long time even though we recognize like nah it's not a deal but we've got nothing else up to the point that it became a little bit critical because the IDFA could be used for other users in that, um, data brokers and others, location data, audience reselling and a lot of things. And I don't know what's the real motivation of Apple, but clearly they say, I I want users to consent for that. And the big change coming is the IDFA doesn't die, it's just, you need consent to use it, but that means it changed everything for the way we, Mm -hmm. we measure marketing. Like, that maybe the IDFA will die, but most companies I work with, they will go work with the IDFA next month or next week even. It's just the whole attribution space is, is really changing. And I think here it also participates in the fact that the playbook is going to change. Like, uh, yeah, this is this is a really defining moment for, for the mobile industry because it's so massively driven by paid, and the way to execute paid is about to be entirely disrupted. It's not going to die. People are still going to spend money to acquire a user. It's just going to be done in a very, very different way.
2: What? Um. so so I, I'm not having the exact language in front of me. Like what keeps... So like for a Facebook install, for instance, like absent of IDFA, I click on a Facebook ad and Instagram. I go to the app store. I open up an app that I, I, I probably has the Facebook SDK in it as well. Is, is Facebook able to do attribution just based on their own sources? No. Is that a technical limitation or is that um, a policy limitation?
1: I'd say a bit of both, actually. From a technical point of view, it's not entirely reliable.
0: W- without the IDFA, it's not entirely they can do fingerprinting exactly. and stuff, but it's not 100% reliable. That's why the IDFA was so important is because yeah. it, it it did allow that
1: Actually, it's interesting that if we caricaturate, it's not entirely true, but the way attribution is done today is if the IDFA is there, we're definitely going to use it. Right. If it's not there, some network choose not to attribute anything or to go to fingerprinting, uh, in some case, well, yeah, more or less. But if you take Facebook in particular and say, no, we're not going to do any fingerprinting. It's The IDFA is there, we attribute, the IDFA is not there Technically, they're not even showing the ads to those users. They're showing other ads. They're showing web ads uh, to those users um, because they didn't want to do it. Was it policy? Maybe. It, technically, the reliability is just not the same. Like, mm. and there's a lot of network doing it, and the reliability is not entirely
2: bad. So you don't you don't think like uh, I mean I'm just sitting here like I know Facebook. If I show up to a party with somebody, they know that I was there, right? <laughs> And like that's literally just from using like NAT, traversal, and IP data. So I have to think that you
0: know, Facebook, maybe they won't. This is first party data. Inside Facebook, right? Yes. Yeah, but but once you install that other app, they're not allowed to collect it. That that's what the policy side of things is, is that they can't mingle the first party data they have inside Facebook with third party data in that they collected it with their own SDK, but they collected it inside a third-party app. And that's the policy break that Apple's creating. And I
2: guess, I guess what I'm speculating here is how does, how, do, how does Facebook even internally enforce that they are not using the fact that they right, well know. Right. If I open Instagram and then I open an app with a Facebook SDK, there is no way in heck that they aren't associating me together between those two apps. Like, I mean, speculation, speculation, don't sue They've me. They've been associating you
1: forever. <laughs> but they won't anymore.
2: Right. And so, yeah. so so basically because of an Apple policy, mm-hmm. they're going to have to go into their systems and, and you can see why they're, they're thrashing so much against this. Right. Because they, they I mean, I'd imagine that's how Facebook's whole game is identity, right? They, they know who you are, where you are and what you're doing in in as many uh, places as possible. So like, um yeah I'm really curious I mean and how how does Apple even enforce this right like how do they know what Facebook's doing to 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 optimize ads in the in the back end
1: In the in the case of Facebook I think it's been pretty clear through the communication they've made and the options that they offer advertiser in the new era that's coming without uh, open idfa to to put it this way that they will respect, like they don't want to cross any line with Apple. Like mm. they've made it pretty clear. So let's say they would even have the technical ability to fully sort of match you, but that would infringe ATT, which is not, you can't yeah. collect the IDFA, is you can't match data between apps. I'm personally convinced that Facebook is not going to take the risk. The risk is just absolutely massive. And from the way they've communicated from the beginning, man, I'm not talking about the public announcement here, but the way they, you know they talk to advertise to their clients to the customers. Um, it's clear that they're not going to take any risk. Uh, some companies, are, you can read through the line that they're willing to take a couple of risk. Um, from what I've seen, Facebook has been one of the cleanest on that, actually, which might surprise some people. But like,
0: let's take a, a step back, real quick, though. Um... So the reason the IDFA was so important to to ads is is this deterministic measurement. It's that when you are in the Facebook app and you see an ad, they collect your IDFA. You go through the black box of the app store. you You open the app that was advertised, and they collect the same IDFA. And so they know that you clicked on this very specific ad, and they know who you were, so they knew the targeting around that. And then you open the app and you you do things. You um, you know start a free trial. You you know they log events and all this stuff. And so you know what what we kind of glossed over, jumping right to ATT is that you know Facebook is using that deterministic um, measurement that knowing exactly who's clicked on the exact ad and then knowing exactly what steps they took in the other app is is that feedback loop that the machine learning is using to to build those models to better target users and so take a minute and tell us like kind of how how that has worked the last 5 or 10 years as far as like you know what events people are optimizing for how that's measured and how that loop is getting fed you know and then now that's what's getting broken and and I think a lot of people don't realize just how important that feedback loop is to how efficient the advertising has gotten.
1: I mean, one, one of the reasons Facebook and Google have grown so big in the app world is not only because they own the inventory, which they do, but their optimization system was actually brilliant because they could do this matching in a very powerful way uh, through the SDK and same, similar thing for Firebase. Your explanation was really good except for one part is you're just considering one app but you need to consider that they have also all the other fitness app all the other mobility app all the other casino app or whatever it is and facebook is about to is is able to make predictions that are way beyond just learning from your data but actually crossing all this data that was extremely powerful a lot more powerful than if you're a small network trying to trying to do it and that that was really like a big differentiator it's kind of you know sometimes I have medium stage app coming to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm, getting, I'm spending significant of money on, on Facebook and Google, and I want to diversify, and nothing works. What are other doing? I'm like, yeah, it's just the reality that it works better. You start diversifying when you really reach a, a ceiling. It's just a fact. Like the, the the like Facebook optimization was really a killer, and and that's why you could say. And I'm going to answer to your question, but I wanted to jump on something that Jacob said before. You could say their attack at the heart on what made them better at a differentiator they had. So maybe it will play level up the playing field with other networks. At the same time, they have so much first party data that is all, or still uh, a load to actually use, that they're also an advantage here. And it's very curious play that's coming between how much uh, they lose and how much they actually have still uh, elsewhere. The same thing applies for, for YouTube and, and other people. But to answer your question, like not everybody uses the same event because... Of stage because of strategies, also because of volume. Like you can't optimize for a super deep event if your budget is $100 a day, just because you're going to give the machine one event a day. It's never going to work. So you need to work a little bit with... I want it basically the way I see this event. And sometimes I, I tell people, don't listen to me telling you you're going to have to use the free trial or the first purchase. Just forget your conception. And you need to figure out what is the event that has enough completion for the network to learn, which is probably somewhere between, depending on your budget, 5 and 25%, depending on your budget, but enough correlation to long-term goals, which for many people are LTV, but you could add retention or some variety signals or others. And basically, you're trying to find the event that fits this two the best possible way. For many people, the simple one in the subscription business is a free trial because it's very early on, there's a lot of it, and nobody's going to pay who hasn't done a free trial at some point. So it kind of correlates with long-term revenue. I think it's also a very tricky event to work with, and it can be misleading at times. And we we already discussed a little bit on that, some example. I think in the the case, like with the new attribution system, it's going to be even trickier to, to think that a free trial generates revenue. And you see the smartest... Subscription advertiser out there, they often use a more complex event than a free trial. And that would be very often a free trial layered up with some other things. One thing that a lot of advertisers use is I started a free trial, but has not canceled within the first uh, two hours, for example, or 20 minutes, or first day, or whatever, because then the event is still occurring very early on and a lot of times. But it's a great signal to remove all these people who are never going to pay, and there's a lot of users who cancel immediately in the subscription business. Subscribe. uh, I start a free trial immediately cancel. This event, like kind of free trial with auto, um, I call it auto renew, but like um, didn't cancel, is kind of like making the free trial a little bit uh, more sophisticated, and then each app will have its own other layers because for some people it's going to be I started a free trial and done two meditation in the first two days or I started a free trial and has done this or has not done that or has not clicked to support or for some people it's age if you collect it at, at the onboarding like it's just the fact that the younger you are the less free trial to payment conversion you get. So some people when I was at 8Fit we were only sending to Google and Facebook Free trial from people over 18 or 21, I can't remember. <laughs> um uh, because we didn't want the free trial of people 15 years old because they all know all cancel the free trial all the time. Um so f- then for every app, like kind of the free trial is kind of a very common one, but for every app there will be like uh layers on top. Then you have subscription app without a free trial, which is very different. And they 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 use the payment. Sometimes the payments just not enough. I had one of those cases, an app that's not using free trial doesn't have like a massive, massive budget. It's just if they try to send a subscription, it's just not enough for the machine to learn from it and optimize. And they have to find earlier signals in the app, like what did they answer at the onboarding? Did they relaunch the app? Have they set up, for example, accepting the notification is a great signal. So you try to, it's not the event you're gonna to use to optimize, but you try to mix up those signals to create something that you can feed back to the machine which is not flexible at all because they usually ask, send me one event. I don't like to call it event because it can be a combination of things. It can be as accepted the push or invited a friend or this. And then you bundle this into an event and you tell Facebook, oh, this is my event. But then you start getting into custom things that Facebook interprets not as good. Whether if you have a free trial purchase They've seen this event in all the other apps. Oh, and this right. is where I corrected you on your assumption that you said at the beginning was fully exact, but for only one app. And actually, the power of those network is they see all the other apps. So if you tell them exactly what they're seeing elsewhere and you say it the same way, it also has a benefit. And sometimes going too custom, even if it's the best thing you can do for data analysis part and the, the regression is better and everything... Maybe it's not the best one for the network because the network struggle to actually interpret it, which is something that is coming at a, even a bigger scale today where this conversion value of uh, SKR network, which is Apple attribution system, are needs to be translated to the network so they understand what, what there is. Um, usually MMPs do that. Because networks don't want every single advertiser to, oh, my conversion number 13 is actually a purchase and number mm-hmm. 11 is a sign up. I don't want to hear about that. Uh, so make me a mapping of the event because the network wants events categorization to be able to make like their the model work. So here I'm saying using the free trial is okay. Using customization on top is great. Be careful not to customize too far, cause you might have the price of it at
0: some point, yeah, that makes a lot of sense so so yeah, and then just to 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 recap a little bit since time is getting short, um so we you know we had this this era where with deterministic measurement, those feedback loops to teach Facebook that hey this these are the events that really matter was very efficient and very effective, and now with app tracking transparency. Apple is requiring apps to request permission for the IDFA, which means if, if they don't request permission, then they're not going to get that deterministic. And then even if they do, they're probably only going to get maybe 30% of people are going to opt in. So 30% of your traffic, you're going to be able to keep running some of that deterministic. But then now Apple introduced SKAdNetwork, Network, and you kind of talked about it for, for a minute, and And that's kind of Apple's new solution for for ad measurement is that you know SK ad network will uh, you can run a campaign, you can get reports back on the installs, and then there's this conversion value, which is supposed to kind of take the place of some of this like deterministic uh, um, ad measurement. Um, but there's a lot of limits around that around the the hours. We don't need to get into all the details today. Um, but but in, a, in in broad strokes, how do you see the limitations of SKI network and the blend of traffic? You know, you're saying a lot of the people that you work with probably are going to ask for permission, so they're going to get some. You know, but up to 30, 40 percent of their user base is going to kind of be still in this old model where you can measure everything. Um, but how do you see the blend going as far as like how useful SKI network is going to be and, and how things are going to go with the being able to feed the model relevant data using SKI network?
1: So regardless of who's going to do what and how they're going to operate, SKI network is the fundamental basis for attribution. Like there's no replacement to it. Everybody's going to use it. Well, actually, maybe not Google, but that's a long conversation. Like <laughs> every advertiser is going to use it. And the, the consented cohorts, so the people who accept to share their data, you can modelize from it. The thing is you have to be cautious with this 30% uh, uh, estimation. And there was a, a lot of discussion around this lately, like you need this on both parts to happen to actually make right. it like, if somebody consents in your app, but not on the Instagram app, when they click the feed, you can't make. You need the match on both sides. So it kind of reduces the accuracy of it. The way I see it, both the network, were like what the networks do to optimize and the way advertisers, advertisers interpret the data is just going to be more complex. Um, before, we had like one set of data and was this deterministic attribution thing coming from my MMP and I make, this is the source of truth. I make everything based on that. And today we've got like, oh, I've got an indication here on the whole cohort, but a bit partial in time and in event and with quantity threshold and stuff. So, and then I've got the consented cohort which is partial, but I don't know, a lot more. And there are other signals. Um, Typically, I'm not sure if this is under NDM and I'm still gonna say it. Like I was discussing with, with Google recently about an app where we're not gonna share the IDFA with Google. And we're discussing how you're gonna optimize the campaign. And they say, look, we're using a blend of signals that we have that are legit and useful, which is a scan network, the IDFA, but you don't have it, We also have data from your Android app that we're gonna interpret into the model. And we also have a lot of first party data that is ours that even if we can't match with you, we still know partly is contextual placement, partly is like they also have first party data from many different apps, which kind of helps a lot. But basically trying to figure out from different angles and the IDFA helps but the, the foundational layer of it is Apple new attribution system. This is kind of for the networks, but if you look at it from a, a, NAP, a developer's perspective, the way you interpret your data is the same. If you only use Apple system, it's kind of, is there, but not really the full picture. Then the idea is just on a partial portion of the cohort. And then you've got a number of growing companies using media mix model or probabilistic attribution models that... Look, look at past data and say, oh, look, uh, TikTok data, uh, TikTok users, they always sign up in less than a minute, uh, where they always, the other users sign up in less than two minutes. When I see a user that sign up in less than a minute, I'm going to say, oh, it's 80% likely that they come from TikTok. I'm, I'm, make, I'm making the point here, so it's obviously not as simple. But like, you've got internal signals that are valid to exp- and, and use like, oh, we believe this user could come from that, and it's not exact. What we're going to have to do is to actually manage different sets of data and interpret from it, which I think, from a data analyst' point of view, is is great because it's super interesting things to look at. But <laughs> there will be a much higher level of uncertainty for sure. Just accumulating two or three sources instead of one.
2: On that probabilistic thing, right? Like you, you have how is that not fingerprinting? Right? If I'm going to go like, oh, the I, the only thing is, is I don't, you know, I start with the universe of all people. And I start to like narrow it down to like somebody installed in TikTok at some point. If I kept going, I can be like David Bernard who installed a TikTok ad, right? And at some and and like making it probabilistic is just stopping at some point, right? Who why how what yeah. stops Google or Facebook from just keeping to drilling down, right, all the way, you know, because they probably have the data, right, to keep drilling down further and further.
1: The, the way I see it, fingerprinting is a subtract of probability probabilistic attribution. It's not all of it, like. But the big, big, big difference, like if you look at what a company like um, Algolift is doing, they've been bought by Vungle recently, is they assign probability that you come from this or this network, but actually you never assign this user. So in your analytics data, you'll never see it. They don't see it. It's just pure, it's in. Ag- it's an aggregation. It's not like every one of them, and I tell you like they're doing this, they're doing that. It's just this is the whole cohort. This is what they're doing, but not following them. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, and this is the, the, the significant difference, they don't track it with other things. Fingerprinting is I look at who clicked and who opened here, whereas what Algolift is doing is they only look at what is happening inside your app and say, well, let's assume these guys are coming from Facebook, but I'm not actually even tell you which guy it is. It's just sure. like, oh, today we've got 500 installs. Maybe 80 are coming from Facebook and maybe 30 are coming from TikTok, but they don't tell you this user is this user at any sure. point and they don't have this data. So, the very and this is where there is an infringement on, on Apple's policy or not. If you're using aggregated first party data, fully legit. If you're using individual data to cross with other products, other vendors, other web and apps, this is not legit. The, the, the line is Pretty clear, actually.
2: Yeah, but is Apple going to send in UN weapons inspectors? Like, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> curious. I don't know. Maybe I'm being maybe I'm being pessimistic or, or like cynical about it. But I could just see how the internally at these at Facebook and Google, there's going to be a drive to like because the whole the whole game is to optimize. And may, maybe it's the case that maybe it's the case that probabilistic is good enough. And like actually, the effort that goes into this deterministic game is not actually worth the ROI of like you know, actually costing in all the externalities and stuff like that.
1: I think it's worse they are right. What it's not worse is the risk, you know, you live and die by the platform. And the fact is in the apps, like this black box is also owning the platform we all make money on and, and making Apple possibly angry at you is kind of a huge risk to take. You know, although it's a very different kind of risk for, for Google and Facebook than for Elevate or I would yeah. I would agree with that.
2: Uh, David, we'll have to like start digging for somebody to whistle blow if one of the networks starts to do something <laughs> uncouth. do the whole like uh, shtick with the like uh,
0: modified voice and the shadowy silhouette. Uh, but that we might have to wait a bit for that. Well, I'm I'm realizing that we really should have split this podcast into like four different one-hour blocks. <laughs> We're I, don't, I can clear that. my schedule, guys. I don't know what you got going on. Today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go four hours on all this. I, I'll plan on having you back on, maybe in, maybe within the month, to kind of talk in more detail about about the the implications of app tracking transparency, how things are starting to shake out, and then what I'd love to do is to to uh, you know check in maybe three or four times over the rest of this year as the dust starts to settle cuz uh, you know we kind of talked through the 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 history of how things have worked and we dug just a little bit into how things are changing but this is i mean it's a, it's a huge fundamental change to not have that deterministic and SK Ad network has some big holes that we didn't get into um, so so yeah we'll we'll talk about that more as as uh, over time and and have you back on and this ATT stuff out now, right? Like, uh, uh Monday. Monday, Monday is when it's we're
2: recording this on the what 21st of first. April, so a few days from now it's gonna go April 26th. So.
0: The bomb yeah. drops,
2: yeah, and we'll find out, we'll find out about it. Yeah, but ad- adoption is not from a day to another, you know, yeah, so uh, a quarter or two from now we'll have a lot more answers, I feel like,
0: right? And so, where what I was gonna say is like, in the like five minutes we have left, um. I think in some ways it's great that we spent most of our time today talking about kind of the fundamentals of marketing and understanding where paid fits and, and talking about how important it is to work on owned and earned uh, marketing and that you know layering UA on top of a, a crappy product is how a lot of these really crappy apps are going to unwind over the next three months because they can't get the same level of
2: prediction of,
0: <laughs> a prediction that's making that work and they don't have the backstop of of having good uh, PR of having good you know an email list that they can they can target and so 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 maybe that's a, a good point to wrap up is that hey over the next six months like Get back to the basics of marketing and build out some of these stuff if you're not already doing that. Any any closing thoughts on like you know how people should be approaching these next few months and ways they can kind of uh, optimize and kind of overcome some of this these challenges if if they are really heavily dependent on paid currently.
1: My, my, my first thought on the paid on this, don't panic. You know uh, Things will go through. We need to figure it out. It's an industry of change. This change is a big one, but uh, it's not the end of the world. There will still be paid user acquisition, and some of it will still do it profitably. It's just going to hurt some more than others, it's clear. But I think it's kind of a wake-up call, one, about paid is not all of it. You need both sides. And two, uh, how have you actually looked at the impact of your marketing activity over the last years? all fully dependent on this. IDFA thing that has great benefits, but also not. And I think it's a great time to revisit, like, exactly the impact of of any kind of marketing activity, paid and not, and sort of review, revisit your view on attribution, revisit, like, as you stop a channel entirely, maybe it's actually you're going to realize that is more or less impact on other channels, like codependencies, people are doing a lot of activities, like maybe they're in your email list and they also see your ads on Instagram. And they also, I don't know, hear an influencer talk about your app. And we're gonna, like my message here rather like is, is try to understand this interdependency better as you stop one, let's say tomorrow, you stop your Facebook ads, but you continue to do influencer and send your emails, try to understand how those relate together. And I think you will get a much better view on the, uh, to assess how much you should be putting back into the machine. Um, so I guess that's a good moment to reflect on on attribution models because we've taken for granted one for a very long time and maybe we're wrong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, this, is, this has been such a fascinating conversation. As I said, we'll have you back on multiple times throughout the year to kind of monitor what's going on and talk through all the implications and the new best practices and stuff. But um, I did want to wrap up just in, any... Um, Uh, People can find you on Twitter, Thomas, BCN, anything else you want to pitch. We do let our guests, uh, anything you want to say to this amazing group of subscription app practitioners about your work or anything else? All
2: 17 of them.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I I tried to make this talk like kind of a spade uh, for non-marketers, and it ended up being quite heavy on marketing, I realize. Uh, I do have a, I do have a newsletter uh, on madv.io, match.io, but uh, I need to warn people hearing that it's mostly about app marketing. So if you like the first part of the podcast a lot better than the second part, maybe you're not <laughs> going to be a super fan of the of the newsletter. Um, I'm on pretty any network under Thomas Bcn. I have a lot of free content on my slideshare and on LinkedIn. For people who are starting to do paid UA and where to look, presentation on channels and the role of UA. So this is this is kind of a good place to. I, I don't sell content there; it's all for free. So um, yeah, uh, that's a place I would send to. And I'm always interested in the conversation. We learn a lot by doing peers. For the future podcast, if we dig into that, I actually hope to learn a lot about tactics that people deploy over time. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So come to a comment, talk to me, tell me what you're doing. I'm interested to hear.
0: Are you taking clients right now or are you booked up for a while?
1: (laughs) There's never room for clients, but then there's always some
0: super (laughs) exciting ones that come up and I have to make space. So So if you can convince uh, Thomas that he'll be interested in working with you. He might have space. <laughs> it's, it's funny that he
2: spent the whole time convincing you that he doesn't know how to do this anymore. So <laughs> 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 the job has yeah, changed. Yeah, I
1: don't know. Things come and go. I don't really have a policy. I'm always I'm always happy to hear about a founder story also, you know? So I, I often take like a uh, uh, very beginning to try to help and then you get into it because people are interesting and they've got a good cool project and... And yeah, I need to learn to say no, that's for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Thomas, we'll, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much, guys. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.